Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. Happy to have you here with us today, folks. We've got a great guest, Lisa Sharon Harper. And Lisa is the author of Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. She is the founder of Freedom Road, and today we talk about truth-telling, reparations, and forgiveness. We're so happy that you are with us here today to share in this experience. And before I let you go, of course, Ian's brand new book, The Story of You, dropped about a month ago. Make sure you get it. It's such a great read. And I would like to ask you folks, if you would, take the time to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you listen on. It really helps other people find it. Hey, that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. Much love to you all. And without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Lisa Sharon Harper, Enneagram 3 with a four wing. Welcome to the Typology. I am incredibly um, honored to be here. I've been hearing about Typology for like a while. Some of my best friends have been on your podcast and I've been like, how can I get on? How can I get on? So I'm literally, I'm literally like thrilled that to be in this conversation. And I have questions. I have questions about my about my Enneagram three with a four wing. I really do. So I can't wait. I can't wait for you to kind of like read the tea leaves and tell me what I am. So <laughs> I've been told that I'm an eight, but I'm like, no, that's not my motivation, you know? So anyway, mm. and then the book, there's the book as well. So yes, let's talk about it all. Let's talk about the book for sure. And I'm thrilled to be talking about that fortune, how race broke my family and the world, and how to repair it all. What an audacious title. I go for those, right? Like my last book was The Very Good Gospel, how um, every um, how everything can be made wrong, everything wrong can be made right. So I'm like, yeah, let's just do it. And I do think it's actually not that hard. These are simple concepts that we learned in Sunday school, that if we actually applied them, we literally could change the whole world, mm. but we don't apply them. Like in the very good gospel, it was just simply repentance. <laughs> Imagine that, like turning and walking another direction. That's how everything wrong can be made, right? Mm. Just turn and repent and live differently in the world together. And it's very similar with, with fortune. Fortune, the first three or first two um, parts of the book, look at the, the hierarchies of human belonging that we have created in our world, particularly around racial hierarchy. And so we look at the roots of it. We look at the fruits of it. And then the, the third part of the book is asking how do we repair what it broke? Mm. And so, you know, how do we repair? We repair actually through repentance. It's wow. Sunday school kids, but it's, if we did it, we could change the world. I love that. It's Sunday school kids. <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, let's just, True. before we jump into that, uh, because we are an Enneagram-focused show, I want to okay. spend a few minutes talking to you about your Enneagram journey, and okay. then I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about this more important topic, okay? Let's okay. let's get yes. that clear, people, at the front end of this. We're going to talk about this more important talk topic. We're going to talk more about Lisa's new book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World, and How to Repair It. We mm -hmm. were talking earlier before we got started just a teeny bit about the Enneagram and, you know, our mutual friend Kirsten Powers and, yes. and you know, just 
let's jump there. You're an Enneagram three, but you're like, ah, oh, you know, I've been told I was an eight, but I don't identify with the core motivation of the eight, you know? No, yeah. Tell really me about don't. your Enneagram journey. Okay. So here's my Enneagram journey. <laughs> it is that I took, um, I, well, first I've, I was at first introduced to it like decades ago, actually, probably about two decades ago maybe 15 years or so. And I was just like, what is this thing? This was weird. I was a Myers-Briggs, you know, loyalist. And so like, no, but I, what I began to realize that is that it's, it's measuring something different. It's actually um, incredibly helpful in relationships and helping you to see what the side of yourself is that you don't see and know when you're operating out of a deficit, out of, you know, a place that's not well and then how to get well and what, you know, what are your strengths? What are the places that motivate you when you're doing well? So like when I began to understand that, then I was like, oh, okay, this is useful. So I, when I was in the running for running as in like, not really running, but like when I was working toward being ordained in my um, previous denomination, um, one of my courses actually had us do the Enneagram and, um, and what that, doing the Enneagram meant was actually doing an online test. And it was a pretty involved test. And I had already known that I was an Enneagram three and the test confirmed that, that I'm a three with a four wing. But what was really intriguing, and this is where I have questions for you, is that I only scored like one or two points less, lesser in the eight category and in the one category. Mm. <laughs> so it was like, Wow. Like literally, so eight and one are coming up real close to the three. And that's probably why people can confuse the two. But when it comes down to my core motivation, I am really motivated to just get stuff done. Like I just want to get it done. So when we talk about reparations, let's just get it done. Let's do it. Let's do the thing. You know what I mean? Um, and it's not though what some people would perceive um, a core motiv- my core motivation is to have power and control right? It's not core. Um, I am very aware of who has power in a particular situation and whether or not they should, or whether or not that's the just and right way to do it, which is where the one comes in um, because of the question of race and gender, right? And so knowing how relationships have been broken through the hierarchies of human belonging, um, doing it right matters to me. Um, but when it comes down to, you know, what's the thing that drives me to get up in the morning and get stuff done, it's, I want to get it done and get it done very well, like excellently so that it reflects well on, on me, my organization, our, our, and the work we do in the world. Mm. So So, let me, let me just very briefly state the core motivation of the three, the one and the eight. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I may surprise you a little bit on the eight. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. Let's just start with ones. Okay. So ones, the core motivation of the one is they really want to be good. And yes. I, I don't, I don't mean good in the, you know, the kind of shallow way, what, you know, just in terms of morality, although that's very important to them. They want to be appropriate in the moment. They want to do, right. they, they always want to do the right thing thing right yeah it's very very so integrity is so important to a one right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i would say that uh, the way the strategy for achieving goodness in that sense is they have a need to perfect themselves 
others, and the world. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when they're at their worst, right, mm-hmm. um, they, their passion is anger. But the anger, they experience it and others experience it as resentment. Hmm. And the resentment is that others are not as concerned as they are hmm. about improving or perfecting things. Mm-hmm. So let's mm-hmm. just talk about one activist, right? You're an activist. So let's see if I can dig some out. Um, mm-hmm. One would be Gandhi. You know, Gandhi, right. Gandhi yeah. was a one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another one would be, oh, what really? Was Are you sure that is mm-hmm. that? Well, Gandhi I'm not sure because I didn't know him, but that's, <laughs> that's that, like, did he do the Enneagram? Like, I, yeah. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know, but you know, that's sort of a traditional Imagine, across yeah. all the teachers I know, they always sort of cite they, Gandhi they he's as a, okay. being a one. Mm-hmm. It, I would also say Ralph Nader, mm-hmm. classic one, you know, uh, mm-hmm. so let's talk about threes for a second. So the okay. core motivation of the three is they really want to, uh, three see a world in which people only value others for what they accomplish and do rather than for who they are inside. Ah, you're looking confused for a moment. So let me keep going. So, okay, I, you're going to keep going, going on, going on, that. on can I, can I, cause I, Okay, can I just say one thing real quick before sure. you keep going? Yeah. So I think that what I hear there is I hear the dark side of the three, but I don't, see, I don't hear the light side of the three. What's the light side of the three? Because I heard the light side of the one. So what's the light side of the three? So when a three is in a good place, mm-hmm. the three is less concerned with their own success and mm-hmm. more concerned with uh, helping others achieve success. Mm-hmm. Th- that three, the, the healthy three is really somebody that is more community minded than lone wolf minded, mm-hmm. right? The, an unhealthy three is really concerned about um, pursuing success being successful, appearing successful, and avoiding failure at all costs. Because, and again, mm-hmm. hear this in terms of a wound. The mm-hmm. wound is that I will only be loved if I uh, achieve and accomplish and do stuff, right? It's mm-hmm. all wrapped up in the doing, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Now, but when they're healthy, right, The they, they are, are people who don't need to drive the bus. They, they're, they're happy to right. be on the bus and let others drive. They're actually very okay with sharing their own failures, which a, an unhealthy mm-hmm. three is not. Mm-hmm. Because the threes, the twos, and the fours are the most image conscious numbers on the Enneagram, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So for the three, it's very important to project an image mm-hmm. of success, right? Mm-hmm. And it, not necessarily, they don't, they don't necessarily want to become the, the CEO of Goldman Sachs success. Right. That's, mm-hmm. that's a stereotype of threes. If right. I mean, I'll give you a classic three. You'll be very surprised. This is, again, I didn't know this person. However, others across the board, you know, teachers I know will, will say this is true. Dorothy Day was probably a three. Oh, really? Yes. Really? Yes. Interesting. Yes. Okay, that's interesting because I, I would have thought she was an eight. But mm. um, so, okay, that makes sense. So, so see, yeah. the, But see, that's a three being confused for an eight right there. There you yes. go. Yes. Yeah. But when yeah. you read the long loneliness, particularly, I mean, she was going to be an activist, but she was going to be the most successful badass activist there. <laughs> you right. know what I'm saying? Right. So it's contextual. She she wanted mm-hmm. to be very successful as an activist, not as a CEO. So it's very contextual. Right. It's yeah, in the right. it's in the whatever milieu or background you come from. Now, yeah, I talk- mean, look, I think that that's part that's that is a part of my story. I mean, 
I absolutely, I think, but, but see, the thing is, and this is the thing, Ian, I wonder how race and gender mm-hmm. impact mm-hmm. these numbers and how they manifest in people's lives. Mm-hmm. So as a black woman who was embedded in a white evangelical world for decades, I learned to be the number two. Mm. I learned that was my place was to be the number two and that I really couldn't, um, I really couldn't do, I couldn't rise beyond that. But what I became really known for in all the organizations, I, I mean, I literally got awards like, like fake awards and even real awards within the organizations for being the hardest worker for doing the most, you know, excellent work for doing stuff that pushed us all forward. And that was because I had the lie going on in my head. And I knew, I know now it's a lie that, and it's a lie that is true for many black women, that our value is only, um, only high as high as the amount that we produce success for others. Mm. Right. So that's what I was running with in the middle of intervarsity world. And, and even at Sojourners, like my value was dependent on how well I produced for this white organization. And, you know, that goes right back to the plantation, right mm. back to the plantation. Our actual value increased by the number of bales of cotton we could pick for that white man to have more money in his pocket. Mm. So I'm, I think so. My question is, you know, how does, how does the question of race and gender and power impact the manifestation of these numbers? Yes. Well, I'm going to kind of circle back to that and because yes. I want to give you the core motivation of the eight. Oh, okay. I okay. Just, <laughs> I kind of want to, I kind of wrestle around with this a little bit. Okay. okay. So the core motivation of the eight mm-hmm. is a need to assert uh, power and strength over mm-hmm. the environment and others mm-hmm. in order to mask vulnerability and weakness. Yes. yes Eights yes. will sometimes confuse vulnerability with weakness. Mm. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of defendedness, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, eights, well, you know, Kirsten's an eight, right? So there's a lot of power, right? A lot yeah. of energy. Yeah. Um, eights know how to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're mm-hmm. really good at it. A three could sometimes in the moment read it and know, okay, well, I probably have to temper that back because the three is kind of, you know, uh, they may say, okay, in this situation, I could be more diplomatic and this, you know what I mean? Eight's like, mm-hmm. I just bring yeah. the juice, right? And, Back truck. Yeah. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. one of the things I was just going to tell you was th- th- eights can be controlling if they're unhealthy. However, eights are less concerned with controlling other people than they are with not wanting to be controlled mm-hmm. by other people. Mm-hmm. That's more concerning to the eight. Right. Mm. And it could be like, nah, I don't really, you know, th- but but don't try and control me. I don't want to be at the mercy of another person. That's really important to the eight. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. their eights are very concerned with justice. Just mm-hmm. so you know, so are ones mm-hmm. more than threes, typically. So mm-hmm. an eight never saw a marginalized person that they didn't want uh, to defend in mm-hmm. some way. You know what I'm saying? Like they I do. This is just the mm-hmm. way they are, right? Mm-hmm. There is a part of the 8 that that has what we call oppositional or go up against energy. Mm-hmm. Go up against energy. Mm-hmm. They don't go along with energy. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's not that. It's this go up against energy. Yeah. And so the person that, you know, most teachers I know who are put up there as the iconic healthy eight is Martin Luther King. Hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Which one of those sounds more like you than the others? Which one of these sounds more like you? I don't <laughs> well, know. See, that's I mean, why That's why I do. I mean, I really do think that that test kind of nailed it. I do believe I'm still a three with a four wing. Cool. I think the four wing, and this is what I was told even in that little course, that the four wing softens my three so it doesn't actually come off like a normal three. Um, I used to think I was a four, actually, because mm. I was an artist before I was ever an activist or a theologian. I was a playwright and an actress. Mm. And so, you know, that's that I was in the theater world for 20 years before I ever, you know, thought of, of theolo- theologizing with the scripture mm. um, and certainly before I ever did a march. So I think that I am, you know, another whole test completely and see if this actually helps, but a whole other test that I did a long time ago um, reveals the motivations, like what motivates you. And it's through a series of essays that you do. And this person mm. goes and like looks at themes and all. And what was they this, discerned is that my core motivation is overcoming. Was this a Johnson O'Connor? I'm sorry? Was this a Johnson O'Connor test? I don't know. Maybe. Um mm. It's well, it's, it was, it was a test that was done, um, in intervarsity, you know, when okay. everybody, somebody wants to go and go up and do management, like they always give somebody this test. And so, you know, this, this woman went back and did like discern the essays and found the common themes. And she said, you know, your, your core motivation is to overcome. And mm. that really makes sense to me. Mm. So a challenge, I am motivated by a challenge. I'm not motivated. I don't like choose fights to have fights. I don't like conflict. I hate conflict mm. but because i hate conflict so much i actually engage in it to get over it because that's the that's to, to overcome to overcome the conflict i'm not somebody who runs from it um that's not that's not me and so you know and i think that the where the three and four come into that is that that's the need like the need we have to get done is to get over this conflict which is why like for me fortune like writing fortune was because we have a need in our society. Our need is to begin to tell the truth, to repair what race broke in the world. Because if we don't, we are running off the cliff of fascism fast. Mm. And when you look at the question of what makes America, America, America did not become America until we passed the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments. And then the 19th Amendment, when we expanded the franchise and actually began to have an actual democracy. Mm. Democracy did not begin in 1776 or 1787 with the first Congress. Democracy, the first inkling of real democracy, happened with the passage of the 14th Amendment, 13th and 15th Amendment as well. So, you know, for me, I look at this current moment that we're in and I see us driving democracy off a cliff. And I see fascism rising fast, not just here, but around the world. And we are joining that train, joining the train into a fascist state. And you see it all over the country with the banning of books. And I want to say my book is likely to be banned. It's probably going to be banned by somebody because it's telling the truth about history, about, and it's telling it from the ground up. So my motivation in telling it is, is not to be against or to have power over or to control or even to do it right. 
My motivation is we need to get it done. Let's get past this. Let's actually, let's actually fix what we can fix mm. and move the hell on. <laughs> I just want to say, I'm smiling. I'm smiling because are you getting the juice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I just, I just want to say that as you were speaking, my heart started going. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, hey, it's the truth. It's the truth, Ruth. Man, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. So let's get past the Enneagram just for a moment. And we'll, we'll okay. interject some stuff if it comes up as we go along. Because now I want to talk about fortune. Let's do it. Uh, this incredible new book. And it comes out of your journey in part of 30 plus years of researching your family history, right? Let's just start there a little bit and then, you know, move into the whole arc of the story. Yeah. So I started researching fortune back in 1991 Mm. um, with a phone call to my mom saying, mom, you know, tell me about our family story. Um, Who is this person, Henry Lawrence on our, actually, I didn't have the name. I just knew like my grandmother on point had told me, yes, we're part Native American, but don't ever tell anybody you are because they'll think you're trying to pass for white. Cause I kept coming to her in grade school saying, what are we? What? Cause people on the kids on the play on the play guard play yard were saying I'm part Cherokee. I'm part Cherokee. You know, that kind of thing. So I was like, well, it feels like we might be because grandma has bone straight hair and, you know, grandpa also was pretty light skinned. So what, what are we? And she would just say, we're black. And I think that when, first of all, what she was responding to is the reality um, that her own mother did pass for white because her own mother was only one eighth black, but yet she was black um, in South Carolina where mm. they were from because she was surrounded on all sides by the plantation, the, by the descendants of the plantation owners who owned their family for a hundred years. And so, you know, there was a, there was, yes, we were light-skinned, but we were light-skinned because rape forced its way into our line, not because um, of anything else. So my grandmother was clear, we are black, but she did let it out that, okay, but we do have some Native American heritage. So I came to my mom after watching Dances with Wolves, like, you know, most Americans <laughs> looking for some yeah. Native American ancestry. And I was like, okay, so what is that ancestry that grandma was talking about anyway? So she traced, you know, back to Henry Lawrence, but she didn't give the names. I still have that family tree scribbled on the back of a, of a um, off-Broadway bill because I was working as a lighting, um, lighting director, not director, what do you call it? Assistant stage manager in a lighting booth of an off-Broadway show at the time. And so... So that led me into the next 30 years of research. And I mean, my mom was really my constant partner in this. She's the one who went to the archives and the National Archives first and discovered Henry Lawrence, the same one that I, um, one out of two that I um, illuminate in the book, that I, I write about in the book, the, the war hero, like who was a part of the Civil War in the 116th Regiment, um, who was was listed as dark complexioned with blue eyes and enlisted himself in his in his dying documents in in the veterans hospital in California um, around 1900 listed himself as German and you know but he was we know that he was half black and half something else we always thought he was where the Native American line came from but I don't think so anymore. I think actually it was his wife that it came from because his wife um, was surrounded in the place where she lived growing up with, with names that would have been on the Cherokee and Chickasaw rolls. Um, 
the the Dawes rolls. They were the same surnames, um, but they're now found up in the hill country in Kentucky because these folks didn't walk. They went up and ran into the hills and they escaped having to walk the Trail of Tears and forevermore then became cut off because by government decree, by this government, not the Cherokee, not the Chickasaw government, by the U.S. government decree, you could no longer connect yourself to your, to your nation if you did not get to the end of the trail and obey your oppressor, basically, um, and get to the end of the trail and, and sign your name on that Dawes roll to say, I made it to the end. So they were always, they were forever cut off and there's no way to prove it. So, but I had to tell the story because it's my story. It's part of our family's um, story. So it's important just to say, I don't make any claim to be part of any Native American nation, but I do, um, I do uh, make the claim that these are my family stories, period. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the biggest point of that chapter, chapter two, is that colonization, the colonization of this land and enslavement of Native American people and African people, it destroyed, it obliterated any continuity of identity and, and self-actualization of identity. In other words, the Cherokee people from thenceforth had to go by the American government's definition of what it meant to be Cherokee, not their own definition, not their own practices and own ways. And it's still the case to this day because that's the system they live within. And I don't, I don't begrudge it. It's just the reality of where we are. Um, so the research that I did stretched all the way back to 1682. Mm. And 1682 was the, the year that my first ancestor, who was not indigenous, landed on this soil we now call America. And she was named Maudlin McGee. Maudlin McGee was Ulster Scott, married to George McGee, M-A-G-E-E. And, um, and they were in the, the eastern shore of Maryland, in Somerset County, Maryland. Um, and it was in that space that then a few years later, Sambo Game was enslaved to a man named Peter Doughty. And it was just like right across the river from, uh, from the McGee's. And somehow Maudlin and Sambo met. And I was so ashamed of the name Sambo when I first learned that his name was, I was like, oh, really? Are you saying that this first Sambo was my great, 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 you know, grandfather and 10 times great grandfather. And it turns out that Sambo was his actual African name. Mm, and it wow. comes from Senegal. It's a Senegalese name. And it means second son. Mm. So there I got part of his story from his name. And it, it was all of a sudden I realized, no, this is a name of honor, mm. not a name of degradation as it was turned into after the fall of Reconstruction, when white people in the South looked around and saw a lot of people named Sambo and then denigrated the name in order to um, promote propaganda about our um, inferiority. And, and Game wasn't even really his last name. I don't know his actual Senegalese last name or surname. What I do know is that you find that name, Game, and um, also listed as Gam, G-A-M. And, you know, depending on what year you're looking, it's, it's earlier, it's gum, then it changes to game. Sometimes it goes back to gum. I actually think that the reason why it's, it started as gum, not game, is because the ship that he came on, the Speedwell, it was loaded in on the Gambia River. 
So his name, Gam, is actually about where did he load onto the ship? And that was a typical colonizing thing to, to change someone's identity so that it's, it's, um, it's grounded in the white person's story, not in their own. Mm-hmm. So my friend, Renee August, who I think you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, Renee in South Africa, her ancestors were enslaved. They were brought from Central Africa down into South Africa in the month of August. And the practice there was to give them the surname that connects to the month that they arrived in South Africa. So I think in like manner, they named him Gam for Gambia River, and it eventually was anglicized into game. Mm. So, so Maudlin, you, oh, go on, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. You, go, you finish no, no, up. No. Okay. So Maudlin and Sambo met each other, fell in love, and had an affair and had a child who they named Fortune. Hmm. And Fortune, over the course of her life, we don't know if she was ever raised with the McGees, but she does eventually go back and live with Sambo. But in 1705, she finds herself before court because she's being brought up on charges of having been an illegitimate child of a mixed race couple that was not married, right? So Maudlin and Sambo. So she's in court and that's how we know about her. That's how we know this whole story. Um, and the, the court d- documents say she is the child of Maudlin and Sambo. And she is indentured until the age of 31. Post haste, she shouldn't have been indentured at all because the law that they were referring to came after she was born, but they indentured her and two successive generations of hers were also indentured. So her body and the descendants that came after her bore the wrath of those first race laws and the privilege of them. So they bore the wrath as in because her father was black, she would be indentured. Mm. Because her mother was white, she was not enslaved. Wow. What a story. What, what an amazing, amazing, powerful, tragic, and yet beautiful uh, tale, right? Um, and, you know, I was thinking as you were speaking, this book could have ended as a memoir. Mm-hmm. This book could have ended as you just exploring identity, uh, history, uh, self-discovery through the lens of your history, family history, et cetera, and ended there. But that's not where this book ends. This that's book right. goes, this, this book uh, broadens out, right? It, mm-hmm. it, from that story into something bigger about truth-telling, about reparations, mm-hmm. about forgiveness, these incredibly big themes. So talk about to me about that. Like mm-hmm. we've moved we move from this story, this personal history, and now we're going to broaden out into, I mean, the subtitle of the book, right? Let's, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what does it say? How race broke my family and the world and how to repair it all, right? So yeah. this is more than a, just about your family history. This is about yeah, how is. do we fix the big problem? So talk to me about those, some of those themes. Yeah, I think it's funny, you know, because I think that going back to that three thing, like the thing that really motivated me while writing the book when it was just, it just felt like, what did I get myself into? This is way more than I can chew. Mm. Um, and that's why it took four years to write it. Mm. Um, but the thing that motivated me was our world right now is running off the cliff of fascism. And what world do I want for my niece, Dove? Mm. What world do I want for my niece, Luna, and my nephew, Razi? Mm. What 
world will I leave them if I don't do this work, if they don't know who they are, and if the America that they live in doesn't know who it is. Mm. And the reality is that I found is that who we are is a series of choices. We as a nation are a canopy of legal choices that we made that, and, and political choices that we made. By politics, I mean we've had conversations, we've made decisions about how the polis would live together, how the people would live together. And those decisions from 1619 all the way to 2021, and now, right now, as we have 19 states um, that have passed voter suppression laws just in 2021, um, 34 voter suppression laws. And then we have a million states, of, well, a million, obviously, but a bunch of states that are now passing voter subversion um, uh, policies that will put people in place that can actually um, decide not to carry through on the will of the, vo- of the voters and just put their own electors in that will just, you know, elect whoever they want in 2022 and in 2024. Um, so voter subversion is happening. This is fascism. Mm. This is not democracy. And what Dr. King said um, in his last book that he ever wrote in 1967 was that the white supremacists, actually, he, he said the segregationists, we should read white supremacists, white nationalists, would rather have an American form of fascism than to have democracy if democracy requires equality. And that is what we are seeing right now. Um, we talked earlier, I believe, of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. That's what created American democracy. And so those things are at risk right now. They are at risk. So I wrote the book so that we could see how we got here. Mm. So we can see how we got here from the ground up, from the perspective of the ones it happened to. Because we are not, uh, the, the charge is to not take any part of the truth out, not to whitewash it, not to truncate it, not to twist it, not to, not to um, spin it, but rather to tell it. Mm-hmm. Tell it. Tell the whole thing. And, if, and as we tell it, then we become empowered to make different choices mm-hmm. about how we will live together in the world. Mm. And that's what repentance is. That's what reparations is. It's, it's coming together to decide we're going to live together in the world differently. We're going to repair the relationships that were broken by the domination of the image of God by, from, by one group over another. Mm-hmm. We're going to level the playing field um, and find a new way of living together. All right, I want to remind everybody, I'm talking to my friend Lisa Sharon Harper and her amazing new book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. I am holding it up for my YouTube watchers, not so that my listeners, but also you can see the cover of this extraordinary book mm-hmm. um, with the foreword by Otis Moss, which is uh, mm-hmm. really, really wonderful, endorsed by, again by our good friend Kirsten Powers, among uh, others. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you've now referenced truth-telling, how important it is that we have to tell the truth. And I, yeah. I, I, really, you know, I really resonate with that. And I, even on a spiritual level, people tire of me talking about probably being someone in, in 12-step recovery for a drug and alcohol addiction for years. Mm-hmm. And I, and, but for me, this goes you know, in every sphere of life. 
we have to tell the truth that if, mm -hmm. when we tell the truth that's when healing begins and i can yes. just tell you haven't done the fourth fifth and you know we're going eighth and ninth steps you know where you in the four and five man you got to tell the truth about yourself mm -hmm. and it hurts like hell mm. i mean i'm just telling you you got to write it down but when then in step five you got to actually go to yourself to another and to god and tell the truth and not just yeah. not just that part of the truth that's palatable yeah. but then you got to go to eight and nine man and that's called making amends yes and, and yes. making amends so i just think these are spiritual healing themes in you know countless milieus right like this is about healing this is about grace this is about justice and and you know and and you know part of recovery is repentance which is literally means to think newly mm. about uh where the center of your person will be you know mm. like what the mm. center of your person will be because if you take mm. drugs and alcohol out of the center you can't leave it empty yeah that's right no, <laughs> something that's right. else is going to sneak exactly in there exactly right you got to something exactly else is going right. to sneak in there so you got to figure out well i got to put get god into the center there i got to get higher power I in love the center this. I love this, Ian. Can I just say that I, I am so resonating with you. And I think that maybe what we need is a 12-step program for whiteness. <laughs> Can we write the book? I mean, hey, I would be down for that. That might be my next project, y'all. 12, step, 12, 12 steps um, to, to renounce whiteness. Can I just say something in America. about that? Because I think my three side uh -huh. is smelling of successful <laughs> thing here. So <laughs> I, I'm just saying like, that really kind of touches me because, you know, in the steps, you know, we start off by saying uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had yeah. become unmanageable. You know, we, we admit that we are powerless over racism, our racism, our whiteness, whatever it may be, and that our lives had become unmanageable. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, uh, you know, I could go through the steps. I just think this. Ah, wow, so we'll talk later, really Lisa. I think, I think there's a lot well, of juice in that. Let me just say that the reason why I say that is because. You know, when we talk about whiteness as a construct, we're not talking about white skin mm -hmm. because there is no such thing. You don't have white skin. You have like peachy kind of skin, right? Thank like <laughs> peachy keen, right? Kind of skin, right? And so um, there's not such thing. But whiteness as a construct was created in 1662. I mean, the moment, you know, the moment that it was created, um, there were seeds of it. And then it was instituted according to the law in Virginia, 1662, when... Um, the question of gender, race, and citizenship all came up together in the same law. Get that, Ian. I mean, think mm -hmm. about this. 1662, this is before Fortune, right? Um, Virginia was the very first colony. They're an English colony. And in this English colony, they go according to English law. English law says that in order to be a citizen, you have to be, first of all, British, right? So British citizen. And citizenship goes through the line of the father, not the mother. So, and um, in Britain, the, in, you know, the, the kingdom, you, you could not enslave another British citizen, nor could you enslave another Christian. So what happens is in, this, in the early, um, you know, first few decades of the colony of, uh, of, of Virginia, um, British men are raping their enslaved African women. And they're creating like a plethora of mixed race children in Virginia. And one of them, Elizabeth Key, says, wait a minute, 
if my dad is a British citizen, then I'm a British citizen because mm-hmm. citizenship goes through the line of the father. And he had me baptized. And he recognized me as his daughter, as the colony demanded that he do. So I shouldn't be able to be enslaved. So she took her case to court and won. And then a lot of other people said, wait a minute, that's my situation too. My dad is a British citizen and I'm baptized. And they took their cases to court and they won. So this is around 1650. So it didn't take long, 12 years for the House of Burgesses, which is the planter class, which now is losing its free labor um, or its indentured labor. Most of them were indentured at that time. Some were enslaved. Um, and they were saying, wait a minute, people are, are now kind of walking off the plantation because they're saying that they're citizens and covered by law and they shouldn't be able to be in, enslaved. So what do they do? They could have gone justice light or injustice light, however you call it. They could have said, you know what? We're going to phase out the slavery thing. We're going to even phase out indentured servitude. We're just going to let these people work for money. And then, you know, and have an economy that, it, that is, is balanced on the work that people do. And, and people are going to be paid according to the work they do, you know, justly. They could have done that. They did not do that. Instead, what they did was they do what we often see them still do today. They changed the law. Mm-hmm. It's what they did in Jim Crow, right? They just changed the law to get the result they want. So what they did is they said, no longer are we going to go according to the law of English common law to say where citizenship comes from. We're now going to grant citizenship through the line of the mother. Whatever the mother is, is what the status of the child shall be. So if the mother is enslaved, then the mother is not a citizen, and therefore not, in, not worthy of protection of the law. And then they added two words that made it race-based slavery from that point forward, in perpetuity. So forevermore, if your mother or grandmother or great-grandmother was enslaved, then you too will be enslaved and all of your descendants after you. Mm. That's how race-based slavery began in America. Wow. And it only took two years for Maryland then to follow suit and come up with it's no race law that ended up ensnaring fortune. And the thing is, every generation we see that. We see, um, we see the, the twisting, the creation of law, um, creation of policies and structures that exist to do one, one thing. To entrench, well, to, to, to create, to entrench, and to protect white male power. And it is, that's the truth. And we need to tell it. Mm-hmm. We need to seek it in our own family stories. They are there. You'll find them in your family story. Um, you will find them in the family stories of your communities. And the way to subvert that twisting of the narrative is to actually do our own homework, to ask the question, where was my aunt when, this was, when Emmett Till was happening? Where was my, my great-grandfather when the Indian removals were happening or the, the, my great-great-grandfather? What side of the Civil War did they, did they fight on? And how did they get here? And I can guarantee you they came in one of three ways. One, they came as one of the nobles who were awarded land, and now they, they were exploiting the labor in order to get a bigger bank account and increase their profit margin. 
Two, they were escaping oppression. Three, they were escaping poverty. It is one of those three ways. So what way was, did your ancestor come? Because I think that as people of European descent, you have been trained and required, actually, to renounce and cut off and separate yourself from your ancestors' stories in order to maintain the illusion and the grasp on this phantom thread called whiteness, this ghost thread called whiteness. And it's dehumanizing because it, it separates you from the land you're from, from your people's story, from your sense of actual rootedness to this earth. And it's the process of doing that family history that has the possibility of rerouting, and I think rehumanizing mm. people of European descent so that you can just simply come down off that scaffolding of human hierarchy and join hands with the rest of the human family. Mm. We welcome you. Mm. Truth-telling. We've now, you know, That's I don't, I don't want to put this in, you know, simplistic mm-hmm. terms like check okay there's truth telling now let's move mm-hmm. to reparations check yeah you know, yeah but let's, let's just talk let's about just it. do it as you know kind of yeah, a, it's a in the sequence book. so mm-hmm. now we've talked about truth telling into reparations now you know and i know that the word reparations is what what some people might call a radioactive word right I get it's, it. it's a word that people go Whoa, you know yeah. and then it, it raises up all kinds of emotional objections intellectual uh, objections etc yeah. and and you yeah. you've had that experience i've had that experience in conversations Absolutely. with people what do you mean by reparations why are they important as part yeah. of the journey right of mm-hmm. repairing it all as the subtitle of your book says yeah race broke us racial hierarchy of human belonging broke us and it is still breaking our democracy Mm. i said it earlier i'll say it again we are driving off the cliff of fascism because we would rather have an american form of fascism than a democracy if democracy equals equality Mm. and so this hierarchy of human belonging is breaking us and there's no way to fix it there's no way to repair it without repairing it. Mm-hmm. And the only way to repair it is to go dig deep, to look at the cost of all of these layered traumas, these layered policies that have, it's like a canopy of laws mm. that have created and protected the privilege. And I hate to use that word because that's almost like a big buzzword now too, but you can see it explicitly in in. Um, in those first race laws, the privilege of whiteness. Mm. And so what does it look like then for us to repair what race broke in the world? And particularly when we ask the question of African-Americans, I think that the first and fundamental question of reparation is how was it broken? How can we repair? Mm -hmm. And it was broken fundamentally by the relationship, the relationship between the people groups, when that first explorer landed on the shores of Africa, holding, you know, Pontifex Romanus, the, the um, edict that was passed down by Pope Nicholas V, that said, if you come across land that's not civilized or Christian, you can claim it and then enslave the people. When they, when they did that, when they claimed it and enslaved the people, that was the break. Because that was the moment that those explorers and those governments failed to see the image of God. Mm -hmm. in the ones they were coming to fail to see the call that they had divine call to exercise stewardship 
of the world, to exercise agency that shapes the world and over their land that they were apportioned by God to steward. They failed to see that. And as a result, the relationship between those people groups was broken. Mm-hmm. So the, the first question of repair, of reparation, is how did it break? And then, then from there, you have to now know, okay, now this is how we can fix it. So the first requirement then, if that's how it broke, is for us to repair the, the, the right relationship between the people groups, to recognize the power dynamics, to level the power playing field. Um, and how do we do that? We allow, we, we allow the image of God to be seen and heard and exercise dominion over this moment. So we go to the impacted people and we ask them, how do you say things will need to be to happen in order for things to be made well with you? And then we do it. That's how we repair it. Mm-hmm. David did it with the Gibeonites. It was not his problem. It did not happen on his watch. It happened on Saul's watch. Um, the Gibeonites were nearly um, had committed genocide against by Saul. They came to David and said, David, um, you know, Mr. David, uh, Saul tried to kill us all, and he wasn't supposed to do that. David had just been talking to God saying, I, there, why is there a drought in the land, God? Why is there a drought in the land? And then there's a knock at the door. And so David had a choice there. He could have said, you know, he could have done what America has done to African Americans. He could have said, I'm so sorry for you. Pat on the head. Peace out right? African-Americans are the only people group in American history who have never been given reparations for the oppression that we suffered on this land, the only ones. And so he could have done that, but he didn't. He could have done justice light. He could have said, um, you know what? I'm so sorry for you. I'm going to go back with my counsel and we'll get back to you and let you know how we're going to handle this. But I, don't, I think the reason why he didn't do that is because that would not have repaired the relationship because the relationship broke the moment that Saul claimed the power of God to determine the last day of, of those people. When he thought it was his job to determine whether or not the Gibeonites should exist or not. And so the correction, the repair must happen with regard to the relationship first. And that's what David did. David asked them what do you say? He did a third, a third way. What do you say we should do in order for things to be made well with you? And they came prepared. They knew. They already had their council meeting. And they told him, and it was costly. It was not an eye for an eye, mind you, but it was costly. And he did it. Hmm. No questions asked. And we know how God feels about it because the response of God is to lift the drought. Mm. Beautifully said. Mm. So we we have these beautiful uh, this beautiful transition, and it seems to me to be a you know at the risk of being sounding reductive, right? Because it's much more complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, we move from uh, from truth telling to mm-hmm. reparations, and now to forgiveness. Yeah. Yes. And it's important uh, that forgiveness yes. comes. After reparations. Exactly. So, yeah. so unpack for me this theme of forgiveness in the book. Mm-hmm. Let's just say very clearly, reparations is for the healing of the relationship. Mm. If we want to be in relationship with each other, we must heal that relationship. 
there's a the last chapter is the chapter on forgiveness in the beloved community, but it wasn't the original plan. The original plan was to was to have the last three chapters go like this: truth telling, reparations, restitution. But I began to see two things. First of all, restitution is very close to reparations, and so we can we can take those things and bring them together. But also, if we end on restitution, does that does that get us to the beloved community? No. Because there are still so many things that can never be repaired. There are people who died. There are communities that were broken up by Indian removals and eminent domain. There are family members who languished in poverty and ended up in prison because of the job ceiling or because of poor education, because public funding was not offered. These are the, this is the cost that can never be repaired. And if we hold on to our need to have all of it repaired, and we demand that from white folk, we demand $100 from people who are are holding a $5 bill, we will never get our need met. Mm -hmm. We will go to the grave needing 95 bucks that they don't have to give us. So who loses in that equation? We do. So what forgiveness does, as Archbishop Desmond Tutu said in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, is it releases the oppressor. It it cuts the ties between us so that we say to the oppressor, those who have oppressed us, you can go now. Mm. We don't need you anymore. Mm. Go in peace and Now we turn to God, who has cattle on a thousand hills, and whose delight it is to ante up, and who moves mountains. Mm. And we say to God, all right, God, it is now time for you to move that mountain, because the need is still there, and you can do it, and you want to do it, so do it. Everybody, we're talking again to my friend Lisa Sharon Harper, author of the book Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. And what I'm hearing from you, Lisa, is that these these terribly important parts of this journey of healing involve, of course, truth-telling, reparation, and forgiveness. This has been an amazing conversation. It has. <laughs> We've never had a conversation like this on typology. Am I right, Andrew? Wow. That's right. I mean, of this substance, of this power wow. and this clarity and, uh, and this urgency. Yeah. Good so Lord. So grateful for this, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so powerful. I mean, Thank honestly, you. folks, if, if I think we are all going to do ourselves a great uh, you know, it, it will be a terrible thing if all of us don't read Lisa's book this year. Anthony, you mm. on with me? I am on. And I've all actually, right. I've been on the Maryland.gov reading this whole thing uh, that you were just talking about, the yes. 1664. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yes. The I'm laws. blown away. So yeah, I'm. this is amazing. Thank you, Lisa. It's all right there. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Thanks for reading. Yeah. You know what? We got to have you back on because there's so much more to to talk about here. So everybody, 
Once again, Lisa Sharon Harper, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Lisa, tell everybody how they can learn more about everything that you're doing, because I'm sure they're going to want to. Well, there's a lot, but you can find us in a few different places, and I'll give you those places. Fortunebook.us is where you can find the book and find out all the information. It's all right there. If you want to find out more about how you can follow along with the events that are going on throughout the month and give you an opportunity to read the book, really in, in a national conversation, um, and then take action to, to push for truth-telling and repair, then follow us at blackfortunemonth.com, blackfortunemonth.com. Um, it's an opportunity for you to download the, the video learning companion, um, study it with your friends, your, your community, your family, and then make a call to your congressperson at the end of the month to let them know you want them to invest in the, in the project of truth-telling and repair of our nation and what race broke in our nation. Mm. Um, and then, of course, lisasharonharper.com and um, Instagram, Twitter, it's all, you know, we're, we're, we're there and it's, it's exciting. All that's going on right now, I really do believe we are, we're in the middle of a window and we have a window of opportunity to make the new decisions about how the world, how we will live together in this world. And so I want to encourage you, please do follow, please do read, and then please do act. Mm. Anthony, you know what I'm feeling right now? Honestly, I'm feeling a little grief. And I really mean this. Lisa and I met for the first time 10 years ago at a Red Letter uh, Christians event. And then a few years later, I believe, at That's a right. Wild Goose Festival event. That's right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And my grief is, is that we, we didn't stay connected. Yeah. Well, but we're connected now. So we there are. You go. But I feel, <laughs> I, I honestly do. I feel sad about lost time. Mm. And, and uh, I think... I hope both of us have evolved into older people with new insights into the world, new insights into yeah. ourselves, for good or for ill. And, yeah, that's and right. uh, I hope we can share a common journey going forward. Um, I hope so too, Ian. That will be yeah. it. Will be wonderful to walk with you in this journey. Man, really. for sure. All right, everybody. Let me just give you my closing words. As always, may you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time.